0: Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Koolabar Capital.
1: And Yingers is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Koolabar Capital.
0: Holy moly, Chris. What a month February was. Can you give our listeners a sense of the total Armageddon out there?
1: Yeah, sure, Yingers. February was an absolutely fascinating month. And a complete bloodbath for interest rate duration lovers or those loaded up on fixed rate as opposed to floating rate debt to be clear all of cooler public investment strategies run zero interest rate duration risk that is they are effectively floating rate, precisely to minimize these duration hazards that we'll talk a lot more about accordingly our zero duration portfolios performed very well in february posting solidly positive returns The problem for duration-heavy portfolios was the spike in long-term interest rates, which was driven by a range of variables, including the rollout of effective vaccines, which Coulomba forecast in the first half of 2020, the expectation that global growth will be strong in the coming years, which has been another feature of our central case, the anticipation of a large injection of fiscal stimulus in the US, and perhaps most significantly, simply positioning, Whereby so many in the market were running quote unquote lazy longs in interest rate duration risk. That is, they were continuing to bet on interest rates falling rather than rising.
0: Yes, Chris, since the lazy long duration trade had worked well for decades, few had reason to doubt it. But when the seemingly inevitable partial normalization in yields arrived, it felt like the entire market wanted to suddenly de risk in February by selling their long bond duration exposures. The issue, of course, is that if everyone wants to sell at the same time, there are going to be few folks to take the other side of the trade, save the central banks. And so until the RBA started buying bonds, the value of Australian fixed rate debt securities went into freefall. The interest rate on 10-year Australian government bond yields surged from circa 0.7% in October 2020 to as high as around 1.95% in February 2021. The RBA's wise decision to suddenly ramp up its bond purchases in the final days of February and in early March, which Coolabar had explicitly flagged as a possibility weeks prior, helped stabilise the situation with the 10-year risk-free rate settling back down to around 1.8%. Interestingly, that is not far removed from our estimate of the RBA's neutral nominal cash rate, which is probably in the 2.0 something range.
1: Yeah, Ying is, it is, however, noteworthy that the Aussie 10-year yield, which is, as you mentioned, currently trading around 1.8%, that's still around 100 basis points higher than the 10-year yield just prior to the RBA commencing quantitative easing or outright bond purchases, otherwise known as QE, in November last year. So in the month of February, the Aussie 10-year yield spiked to more than 40 basis points, or 0.4%, above the equivalent US 10-year yield. Now, the RBA's QE program in late 2020 had largely extinguished this differential, which expanded sharply again in February. Yet carried some outstanding interventions by the RBA's Governor Phil Lowe in March, which we'll discuss in much more detail later. The Aussie 10-year yield is now only eight basis points above the US 10-year yield. The same story applies to the Aussie dollar, which while piercing 80 US cents in February is now only at 77.6 US cents, thanks to the RBA's great work. So Ying is with wages growth running at 1.4% annually, miles below the 4% threshold required to generate core inflation in line with the RBA's target two to 3% band, and the 6.4% jobless rate similarly consistent with massive excess labor market capacity. Unfortunately, the RBA is not remotely close to hitting its full employment or inflation targets. Juxtaposed against the spectre of the fiscal policy swinging into a highly contracturing mode that will detract from growth in the second half of this year, it's clear the RBA has much more stimulus to supply yet, which I think Gingers will delve into more soon.
0: Yes, Chris. As we have noted in many different forums, one of the unique benefits of the RBA's QE program, targeting bonds with tenors of five to ten years, is that it does not directly affect home loan rates, which price off the overnight cash rate or shorter tenor bonds, or therefore house prices. And we're seeing the housing market roar back to life as we forecast back in March, 2020, when we projected prices would start rising again in September congruent with our expectation that they will climb by 10 to 15% nationally in 2021 with the risk skewed to the upside of that range. But as both the RBA and we have repeatedly noted, this is not yet being accompanied by unseemly credit growth rates or increases in leverage that would imply that housing is becoming a financial stability problem. Rather, the recovery in housing is currently just a reflection of monetary policy doing its job. Of course, that's not to say that housing will not become a challenge for policymakers in the future, we fully expect APRA to be compelled to start gradually introducing macroprudential constraints on credit creation over the next one to two years. Indeed, we believe that policymakers are working on their macroprudential playbook right now, which has proven to be highly effective in Australia in the past.
1: Yeah, so in some years, February was the single worst month on record, that is, over the last 31 years, for the long duration Aussie bond benchmark known as the Osborne Composite Bond Index which only contains fixed rate rather than floating rate securities. And it has an average duration or effective maturity of 5.9 years. Just to be clear, duration and maturity aren't exactly the same thing, but they're similar concepts. In the month, the Osborne Composite Bond Index lost an incredible 3.6% and has now lost 2.8% over the last year, February. For what it's worth, our insta-only active composite bond strategy has beaten the index by 423 basis points or 4.23% in the last year. This is also the worst 12-month return recorded by the index on a rolling monthly basis since the last big bond market bloodbath in 1994 when it
0: fell 6.2%. By way of contrast, Kulibar's zero interest rate duration, i.e. floating rate strategies, performed robustly in the Insto domain, our zero duration, average AA-minus rated long-short opportunity strategy was up 147 basis points, or 1.47% gross, in the month of February, and is up 15.9% gross since its inception on the 1st of May last year. Just note this product is not available to retail investors, though. Coolbar's daily liquidity, zero duration, average AA-minus rated long-short credit fund returned 52 basis points, or 0.52% gross or between 37 to 38 basis points net retail in February. Longshot credit is now up 11.2% gross, or between 7.96% to 8.15% net retail over the 12 months of February, notably including the March 2020 shock. Our daily liquidity solutions that reside in FE Fund Info's cash enhanced universe, namely the five crown rated Smarter Money Higher Income Fund and the Smarter Money Fund, which have zero interest rate duration risk, And an average credit rating of A plus and AA minus, respectively, returned 29 basis points gross, or 21 to 22 basis points net retail, and 22 basis points gross, or 15 to 16 basis points net retail in February. Over the last year, including the March shock, the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund and the Smarter Money Fund returned 4.42% gross, or between 3.15 to 3.3% net retail, and 3.2% gross or 2.15% to 2.25% net retail respectively. Finally, the BetaShares Active Australian Hybrids Fund, the ticker being HBRD, returned an estimated 29 basis points before franking or 31 basis points franked in February compared to the ASX Hybrid Index's 27 basis points. Over the past year, HBRD has returned 5.22% unfranked after fees or 6.06% franked after fees, compared to the ASX hybrids index's 4.61% unfranked. One surprise in this incredibly volatile month was the performance of the benchmark floating rate note proxy, the Oswan FRN index, which actually suffered a small loss of 0.02%. Over the last 12 months, the Oswan FRN index has returned 1.59%. Now, since 1998, the FRN index has only experienced 10 individual monthly losses. Having said that, 40% of those monthly losses have arisen since August 2019. This is because the decline in the RBA's cash rate from 7.25% in 2008 to 0.1% today has radically reduced the organic income buffer the index has to absorb movements in capital values as a result of changes in credit spreads. Put another way, the probability of losing money in floating and fixed rate bonds is much higher today, given that yields are lower than they have been in the past. This is really important for investors to understand. You have a lot less yield protecting you from monthly losses. You consequently have two choices, either chase more risk to earn more yield, or find an active fixed income manager that can safely produce capital gains independently of risk-related yield through consistently exploiting bond mispricings.
1: Well said, Yingus. In February, credit spreads tightened throughout much of the month, albeit then widening sharply for a range of different reasons in the back end of the month. In the ASX hybrid market, two new deals from Macquarie and CBA pushed five-year major bank hybrid spreads from about 261 basis points above the bank bill swap rate at their intra-month lows up to circa 276 basis points and if you want to read our analysis on the Macquarie and CBA hybrid deals please go to my Livewire page uh, where you can read all our research. Hybrid spreads accordingly remain a long way above, specifically 40 basis points above, their post-GFC tights around 235 basis points. The good news is that these two new hybrid deals which we'd actually forecast the arrival of a month prior arguably clear away much of the near-term supply risk. In the tier two bond space five-year major bank spreads jump from 124 basis points in line with the post gfc lows to 144 basis points in the second half of february as a result of profit taking in the latter part of the month the technical outlook for triple b plus rated major bank tier 2 bonds in aussie dollars appears to be somewhat positive given banks have focused on issuing very large transactions in foreign currencies at levels that are often well inside their aud curves in credit spread terms. In 2021, this includes Macquarie and CBA in US dollars and ANZ in euros. According to our proprietary constant maturity internal indices, the five-year major bank senior bond curve performed poorly in February. Uh, We had no exposure, having sold 2.25 billion of senior bank bonds last year, with credit spreads rising from 29 basis points above the bank bill swap rate to 41 basis points. While some peers have rather amusingly argued that major bank senior bond spreads will compress sharply from their 29 basis point levels in January to as low as 11 basis points, I can say this is definitely not a view we share. Finally, in semi-government bonds, our constant maturity 10-year index for New South Wales was flat in February, bobbing around 21 basis points over the Commonwealth government bond curve. There was, however, an appreciable increase In five-year New South Wales spreads above uh, the government bond curve, which jumped from nine basis points to 13 basis points, which was driven by the broader interest rate volatility and risk-off tone at the end of the month.
0: Yeah, Chris, this was despite a huge improvement in the New South Wales budget deficit, which Coulomba had long forecast, indicating that new supply will be a lot less than the market had hoped. The New South Wales half yearly budget update has revised down the forecast government budget deficit for the 2021 financial year from November's budget estimate of a $28.5 billion deficit to a $21.6 billion deficit. This $6.9 billion improvement is in line with Coolabar's monitoring of monthly budget data that showed the budget was tracking about $5 billion better than the government had expected late last year. The revision to the current financial year estimate mainly reflects better revenue, particularly taxes, although spending has come in lower as well. The smaller budget deficit points to a reduced funding task. New South Wales T Corp has issued an updated estimate of the term funding task for the 2021 financial year of $29.6 billion, previously $35.8 billion, We expect that the earlier $28.2 billion estimate for the funding task in the 2022 financial year will also be revised lower as the budget outlook continues to improve. A similar story has played out with the Commonwealth budget deficit in line with our previous projections. Data for January show the underlying cash budget for the 21 financial year is running about $14 billion better than the run rate required to hit Treasury's full year forecast of a $198 billion shortfall. Which is remarkable considering that Treasury revised down its forecast from an initial estimate of $214 billion as recently in December. Seasonally adjusting the monthly data, Coolabar finds that the actual underlying turnaround is bigger at $25 billion. Once again, this points to less new issue supply than investors have banked on. Most of the improvement in the budget is due to spending undershooting the government forecast profile by about $9 billion driven by lower welfare payments and grants and subsidies. Revenue is tracking about $5 billion above expectations, mainly due to higher company and Superfund tax receipts, although it has lost some momentum after quickly recovering from the worst point of the pandemic. While the budget deficit for the 2021 financial year will still be the largest peacetime deficit on record, the improving trend shows that government is likely to revise down its forecast substantially when the Treasurer brings down the budget in May. Victoria is also no exception to this trend of upside fiscal surprises, even though it was subject to longer and more stringent lockdowns than the rest of Australia. This is clear from budget data for the first half of the 2021 financial year, or Q3 and Q4 of the calendar year, which shows the budget is tracking about 4 to $5 billion better than the profile implied by a simple linear interpolation of the Victorian Treasury's forecast of a $38 billion deficit for the financial year as a whole. This reflects payments tracking well below expectations, more than offsetting a slight miss on revenue to date. Importantly, the budget should continue to outperform expectations over the rest of the 2021 financial year. This is because the simple linear interpolation we use to approximate the run rate to reach the annual budget forecast is likely unrealistic. Instead of steadily increasing over the course of the financial year, the deficit was likely front-loaded with the greatest shortfall in the first half of the financial year when lockdowns were in place, followed by an improvement over the remainder of the year as the economy recovers.
1: Okay, Yingers, hold your horses. Hold your horses. That's enough boring stuff. No more talk of budget deficits, please. Uh, Let's turn to the much more interesting news of how the RBA brutally bashed the bond bandits. So we're recording this podcast on the 14th of March, 2021, and the RBA's governor, Phil Lowe, did a sublime job last week of radically recalibrating flawed market perceptions of the central bank's monetary policy posture while quietly, yet brutally, steamrolling short sellers that were daring to question his commitment to unconventional stimulus. The backstory here is that there has for some time been mixed messages on the RBA's bond-buying, aka QE, program which has in turn undermined its efficacy. Because Australia rather fortuitously sailed through the GFC in much better shape than its northern hemisphere peers, suffering only a modest increase in unemployment and avoiding a technical recession, the RBA did not have to floor its cash rate to 0%, with the overnight cash rate troughing at 3% in 2009. This therefore obviated the need for the RBA to unfurl alternative measures to support growth, such as buying government bonds to reduce longer term risk-free rates as most other central banks did.
0: That's right, Chris. It took a one in a hundred year pandemic to compel a characteristically cautious Martin Place down the path of long dated asset purchases. While the RBA promptly launched an important range of QE style programs in March, 2020, including liquidity injections and the $180 billion three year term funding facility, It took another nine months for it to embrace more outright bond buying, which it initiated in November. Since the inception of this type of QE four months ago, the market, economists, and some commentators have held the view that the RBA wants to do as little as possible, will taper QE as soon as it can, and is not overly motivated to defend the efficacy of the program. These stakeholders were universally surprised when the Deputy Governor, Guy DeBelle, put bond purchases on the agenda in September 2020. They were stunned again in February 2021 when Lowe presciently cauterized the prospective tapering debate by pre-committing to a second $100 billion round of QE once the current program expires in April. And this week, the central bank startled the market and economists in a multiplicity of ways with a newly emboldened commitment to defending the credibility of these measures.
1: Yeah, stepping back for a second here, Ying, is the RBA's post-COVID mission is singularly and ruthlessly Focus on restoring full employment in australia to normalize wages growth back towards the four percent annual pace that prevailed prior to the gfc the available evidence suggests this is going to take years to achieve assuming away any future shocks the rba thinks we might get there in three to five years concurrently the federal government's unprecedented fiscal stimulus has to be unwound directly undermining the rba's stimulus efforts and here it's worthwhile noting that There was a fairly aggressive warning from S&P this week directed at Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, uh, basically telling him that unless he normalises his budget settings, Australia will lose its prized AAA credit rating. And note also that the Commonwealth's AAA rating is assessed evaluating the debt of both the federal and state governments and massive state government spending, explicitly encouraged by the RBA, has chiselled away at the integrity of the sovereign's AAA rating.
0: Yes, and a final constraint is that the RBA has exhausted its traditional tools in responding to this crisis. The overnight cash rate is already sitting at its effective lower bound of 0.1%. This means that Martin Place's main focus is on buying Commonwealth and state government bonds to exert downward pressure on the escalating trajectory of long-term interest rates, which relieves the ensuing upward pressure on our exchange rate. In the absence of the RBA's valiant interventions, the Aussie dollar would be trading well north of 80 US cents, smashing exporters and import competing businesses. The message the market has failed to understand is that the RBA's QE program is here to stay. And with other global central banks increasing rather than decreasing their own bond purchases, as the ECB did on Thursday, the RBA is likely to do more, not less QE to ensure our economy is not disadvantaged vis-a-vis the rest of the world.
1: I can't disagree with that analysis, Yingers, and it really brings us back to Lowe's blockbuster speech this week. Now, traders and economists had convinced themselves that they could force the RBA to discard its three-year yield curve control policy, whereby it targets keeping three-year government bond yields at 0.1%. Because of the RBA's struggles to defend this policy in recent times. In particular, many in the market were aggressively betting against three-year Aussie yields remaining at 0.1% by short-selling the relevant bonds and lifting yields above the RBA's official target. These traders were encouraged by Chatter that the RBA was a reluctant QE participant, which was ostensibly reinforced by an awkward and unnecessarily academic debate between Labor politician Andrew Lee and the RBA on whether they could do more QE. This left the distinct impression that the RBA was sceptical about the benefits of additional QE despite its demonstrable restraint on the exchange rate, thereby only incentivizing traders to take low on. Some trading desks noted that the brewing battle resembled a central bank trying to defend a currency peg. Every day, these desks were advising their clients like us that there were mounting questions regarding the RBA's monetary policy credibility. Indeed, as long-term interest rates started to soar around the world in February, many offshore investors felt the RBA's battle with markets was becoming a signal test case for all central banks. On Tuesday, the RBA delivered a savage knockout blow to the short sellers by two brutal means. First, they suddenly stopped the Commonwealth Treasury lending out three-year government bonds, which partially denied short sellers access to these assets to then dump on the market. This meant that the main lender of three-year government bonds was the RBA itself as their single largest owner via QE. The second hammer was the RBA massively increasing the cost of borrowing these bonds, making it prohibitively expensive to short sell them. In just a single day, Martin Place brought the short sellers to their knees and three-year government bond yields rapidly converged back to the official 0.1% target. This was followed on Wednesday by Lowe's speech, which was, as the governor was heard to privately remark afterwards, designed to deliver some, quote, clear messages to investors.
0: I agree, Chris. The first was that contrary to widely held expectations, Lowe said that the bank remains committed to the three-year yield target. In case you missed that message, Lowe repeated it. He said, we are not considering removing the target or changing the target from 10 basis points. The only question was whether to keep the April 2024 bond as the target bond or to move to the next bond, that is the November 2024 bond, later this year. One bank commented that there was substantial interest in buying Aussie government bonds after Lowe reiterated the RBA's commitment to its three-year bond yield target, which we see as a response to markets challenging the credibility of the policy. Lowe's second message was that silly expectations for possible increases in the cash rate as early as late next year and then again in 2023 were plainly wrong. Or in Lowe's blunt words, he said, this is not an expectation that we share. And by we, he means the people that set interest rates. A third message was that the RBA is comfortable with the idea of increasing QE whenever it needs to, as it did a couple of weeks ago when it bought $4 billion of bonds on a single day. In Lowe's words, we remain prepared to alter the timing of purchases under the current programs in response to market conditions. He continued, we did this last week when liquidity conditions deteriorated and will do so again if necessary. The fourth message was that markets should be pricing in a high likelihood of QE3 after the second $100 billion bond buying program ends. Low stressed, quote, later in the year, the board will also consider the case for further extending the bond purchase program. We are prepared to undertake further bond purchases if that is required to reach our goals, end quote.
1: Yeah, Ingers, and I think the final and arguably most significant message was that the RBA has materially lowered its estimate of its full employment target down to a jobless rate in the low 4% range. Only a few years ago, this was figured to be around 5%. When asked by the AFR's economics editor, John Keogh, whether full employment could be consistent with a jobless rate of just 3.7%, as has clearly been the case in the United States, Lowe responded that this was, quote, entirely possible. Lowe continued, I certainly hope, And it's not inconceivable that we could sustain an unemployment rate in Australia, starting with a three. Now, Ying, as it would be remiss of me not to point out that Kulibar Capital had foreshadowed that a three point something percent full employment estimate was plausible only a week ago. Critics of QE seem not to understand that there is no moral, ethical or philosophical difference between the RBA dropping its overnight cash rate to 0.1% and a QE policy that tries to keep the market's best guess of what the cash rate will be over the next 10 years as represented by government bond yields as low as possible. So I think that wraps up this pretty punchy episode of the podcast. Thank you again to all of our thousands of listeners. Uh, we've been overwhelmed by the positive feedback on the podcast. If you ever want to reach out, we love hearing from you directly. Please email us at info at coolbarcapital.com.
0: This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.